Welcome to this podcast where we'll be talking about domestic violence. We know this is a, a challenging area of general practice, but I think this conversation is really important for a number of reasons. Domestic violence is common. It's estimated that one in 10 women are currently experiencing physical, emotional or sexual abuse from an intimate partner. And those experiencing domestic violence have more GP attendances than those who are not experiencing domestic violence, which means that we're managing domestic violence or its effects almost every day, often without knowing it. Domestic violence can be fatal. And recognising red flags is a skill that we already have and that we practice every day. We can apply that to domestic violence as well. We can make a huge difference as a GP for a domestic violence victim, firstly by having the skills to act on our suspicions, to inquire, to have that clinical curiosity and to respond to and support a victim who's asking for help. And I think we'll all agree it's a huge responsibility navigating the ways to keep a patient safe. That's why we're talking about it today. My name's Jane Brabban. I'm a general practitioner in Orange in the central west of New South Wales, where sadly domestic violence rates are amongst the highest in the state. I also work as a forensic examiner for the on-call sexual assault service, where we provide acute medical, forensic and psychosocial care to victims presenting following a sexual assault. And I'm really lucky to be joined by my two esteemed specialist colleagues, both fabulous people and very experienced and knowledgeable in the field of clinical forensic medicine, Dr. Ellie Friedman and Dr. Kathy Kramer. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, Jane. I'm Dr. Ellie Friedman. I'm a specialist sexual health physician and the medical director of the Northern Sydney Local Health District Sexual Assault Service at Royal North Shore Hospital. I also work as the medical forensic education coordinator for ECAV, the New South Wales Education Centre Against Violence. So I'm currently engaged in various research and workforce programs and work closely with New South Wales Health addressing education, training and workforce issues. And I'm Dr Cathy Kramer. I'm a specialist in forensic medicine, so I mostly work in hospitals, but I still do a day a week in a women's health centre, which is uh, very much a general practice-like setting. In my specialist role, I manage three rural sexual assault services in New South Wales, and I'm a senior clinical advisor to the Ministry of Health for its PARVAN unit. That's the unit that develops policy for managing victims of violence, abuse and neglect. Welcome, and thank you so much for, for talking to us. So domestic violence is as diverse as people are, but it is characterised by a complex pattern of behaviours of a person that has the effect of controlling another person within a relationship. And the behaviours may include physical, sexual, emotional, financial and social abuse. We hope to cover some of these complexities and the difficulties of looking after people coming from a domestic violence setting. And we have two cases to address some of the challenges. Although the exact legislation around domestic violence does vary from state to state, most of the legal principles around reporting, safety and confidentiality are common to all Australian jurisdictions. So we will try, where possible, to highlight areas where there is significant difference. Our first case is Jennifer. She's a 44-year-old woman with two children, aged 14 and 16, and she's married to Michael. The family have been your patient for many years, and you have been treating Jennifer for anxiety and depression. Jennifer attends for a repeat prescription. She tells you that she has recently separated from Michael and discloses that their relationship has become increasingly difficult. 
On further questioning, she tells you that he has always been very controlling of her social relationships and recently has been increasingly verbally abusive and has threatened her physically. Ellie, how would you respond to this? It's quite a big disclosure for her, and I think our initial response is one that's supportive. So acknowledge that that's a big deal for her to be telling you. Communicate belief and validate the things that she's told you. Um, Really important to emphasise that um, violence is not acceptable or the threat of violence is not acceptable and be very clear that she is not to blame. It certainly sounds as though from what she's telling you that there's been some degree of control or abuse going on for some time. The, The things about controlling of her social relationships is often a real hallmark of those controlling relationships. So I think that the next thing I'd want to do is to try and actually formally assess how much risk she is at. So one of the things we know about domestic violence and that kind of characteristic coercive control is that there's a myriad of small behaviours that each one by itself may not look that big, but put together they often form a picture of a much bigger risk and a risk of ongoing violence and harm, whether it's physical or psychological. So I would do some kind of risk assessment. In New South Wales, we use the DVSAT, the Domestic Violence Safety Assessment Tool. That's used by police in the context of domestic violence, and it's a fairly well-validated tool for assessment of risk. In different states, different tools are available, but I think it is worth using some kind of formal tool, and that's for a few reasons. The first is just that things change. So you want to check what the risk is now, whether she's at serious risk, whether you need to involve further agencies, but you might want to repeat that test as you would any other kind of clinical test and repeat that safety assessment kind of down the track and see whether things have changed. So it gives you a good measure of what's happening to her risk, but it also gives you a very objective measure both to share with other agencies if you believe that you need to involve police or domestic violence agencies in her care. You can give them an objective measure of why you think they need to be involved. It's also quite a good way of engaging with the patient and reflecting back to her the risk that she's at and naming this as violence. So because things happen slowly within a relationship, it often takes a long time for people to really realise that what's happening to them is an abuse. But when you have a kind of formal assessment that you can go through with people and share the findings with them, it often becomes much clearer to them that what they're experiencing is abuse. So the kind of things that the DVSAT asks about are things that we know are risks within domestic violence. So asks about things like social isolation, financial abuse, alcohol use, things like separation, which she's just told you she's recently separated, is a risk factor, whether the perpetrator has risks to weapons, whether sexual assault is a part of the abuse. We know that sexual assault in the context of DV is a marker of fatality and a marker of seriousness. So I'd be wanting to go through that. The DVSAT also has some questions that ask about the patient's own assessment of risk, which is really useful as well. Having done that, I'd also be wanting to do some safety assessment around her children. They're teenagers, so we'd just be wanting to make sure that they're safe, that they're not being involved in the abuse, that they're not necessarily witnessing abuse, and that threats haven't been made against them. And then I would use the other use of a kind of risk assessment tool is that you can do that to start the conversation with your patient about risk management. 
So having identified what the risks are, the next question I would tend to reflect back to the patient is what are you doing at the moment to stay safe? Now that might be staying physically safe. It might be things like changing the locks or you know, making sure that you're hiding knives or that there aren't weapons in the house. But it's also about staying psychologically safe. It's about who do you talk to? What are the strategies you use to stay sane? It's also about how you record these things. If you're recording evidence, do you keep a diary? Do you screenshot if there are threats on your phone? So just thinking about the strategies that someone is using to stay safe and then building on that. So making sure that everybody in a DV situation, however low the risk appears to be, has access to emergency numbers and has access to an escape plan, has an idea of what they will do if things get worse. So those would be my main things, making sure that I've assessed that risk and making sure that we've talked about strategies to manage that risk and thought about what support Jennifer needs in managing that risk. So we're not just giving her a whole heap more work to do. I think that that is going to be more than your 15-minute regular repeat script appointment. So I think it's important to recognize that sometimes these are the cases that are going to blow out your time management, but that actually this is important. And if she's disclosed to you, it's important to take that time. And it might mean that that becomes a half an hour or even an hour's appointment. But it's a medical emergency. It's important to take that time. It's important because if she discloses to you and you say, that sounds great, I'd love to talk to you about it sometime, but I'm too busy now, she may never come back and she may never disclose to someone else. So yes, this is all time consuming, but I think that it's time well worth taking. Absolutely. And demonstrating to her that you care and that you think this is important is part of the therapy too, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that kind of giving it the respect, giving her and the subject the respect and seriousness is really important. And that's more than just paying lip service to it. It's actually taking the time. Well, you do go through Jennifer's safety with her and she's currently not keen to go to the police, but she feels the threat is low and that she can manage risk herself after the discussion with you about various measures she can take. Kathy, what do you think it's important to do at this point? You know, I suggest using the the stages of change assessment and the motivational interviewing skills that you already have to help Jennifer appreciate her risk and feel able to act on her options. That may take you several sessions, but on the other hand, you might be able to move her through it quite quickly. Never underestimate the impact that you as a trusted GP have when you frame this as domestic violence and potentially as a crime. So I agree with Ellie, I'd be giving her contact details for local DV services and talking about where she can keep them safely so her partner won't find them. And I would emphasise the importance of calling triple zero if she feels unsafe and explicitly giving her permission to do that. When it comes to making a follow-up appointment, which I'm very keen to do, I strongly advise face-to-face over virtual because with telehealth, you can't be certain who else is in the room out of camera view. And further, I would tell Jennifer that if she doesn't attend that appointment, that's going to raise concerns with me about her safety. So now the two of you can make a plan for what would happen if she doesn't attend. Is the practice nurse going to do a follow-up phone call later that day? Are we going to be calling a neighbour to check on her? Is that a trigger for me to contact police? And again, that would depend on how worried we are about the risk. And once she's left, now it's time to document the consultation. And I think uh, what to write in the notes causes a lot of angst sometimes, but the principles are really simple. Regarding the history, you're just going to briefly document her exact words. Patient says this, 
patient says that. And by the way, I, I ban the word alleged. People do not present with an alleged sore throat. People do not present with alleged domestic violence. You know, it's a legal term and it kind of implies that, you know, there's some doubt in your mind here. Just patient says, patient says this, patient says that. Regarding any injuries that you may find, like at a minimum, you know, document that you did see them. I saw a bruise on the left upper arm. Even better would be go to that next level, but the same sort of information that you document for any other skin lesion. A five by three centimeter oval shaped brown and gray bruise on the medial aspect of the proximal third of the, the left upper arm, for example. The really important thing to remember here is that failure to document these consultations properly can lead to a discrepancy between your written evidence and the victim's evidence in court, and that's gonna undermine her credibility. Very true. And although these consultations do tend to stick with us for a long time and you think you're going to remember all the details, the details documented in your medical notes are just so important, aren't they? Absolutely. To create a timeline, as you've said before, and in case you are called to write an expert statement or called to court many, many years later, which could be the case. And very important in court. If a patient is saying, you know, I told my GP and I know I showed this bruise to that GP and police subpoena the notes, there's nothing in there. That's incredibly damaging to a court case. So Jennifer does come back, but it's only six months later for her repeat prescription, like a routine visit. And you're hopeful that she has left the situation and that she's now in a safer situation. However, the violence against Jennifer has progressed There are now more threats. There has been an escalation in his intrusive behaviours and threats. He's turned up to where she's now living drunk. He's been contacting the school where the kids are. He's been texting incessantly and friends of Jennifer have also witnessed him stalking her. Cathy, now how would you respond? Firstly, I'd pat myself on the back that she felt that she could come and tell me about this. We know disclosing's really hard. So clearly, we've got a trusting relationship here that I can really, really build on. It's a solid foundation. So, you know, going to have to repeat my risk assessment, whether that's informal, just you know, my common sense appraisal of what she's just told me, or whether I use a formal assessment tool. And because I'm in New South Wales, I'd use the DVSAT, that's the Domestic Violence Safety Assessment Tool. And that's going to indicate the risk is now high. So I'm going to be reflecting that back to Jennifer and exploring discrepancies, if there are any, between my assessment of her safety and her beliefs. I'm definitely going to be recommending police involvement. If she's hesitant, which is not at all uncommon, then I've got to take some time to explore what what are her barriers to going to police. Is she scared to go to police? For example, it might be something as simple as it being an outstanding warrant, or maybe she's had a negative experience in the past going to police. Or maybe she's worried that they're not going to believe her. And this is where you can talk about the dedicated DVLOs, the Domestic Violence Liaison Officers. So they're in all jurisdictions across Australia and they're uh, police officers with specific training in managing DVs and they're, they're just amazing, amazing resources. Or perhaps the perpetrator's got her to believe that if she goes to police, she'll lose custody of the children. That might not be something she'll voice. It's worth coming straight out and asking that because it's a really, really common tactic that you can then address. Quite often, she might feel that she's protecting him. And like I'm putting protective in in scare quotes that you can't see, but I am. So victims often, you know, they love this person who's hurting them. So in this situation, you need to shift that focus away from getting him into trouble to actually protecting him by stopping him committing a violent crime that may land him in jail. And finally, and again, this is one you might need to specifically ask about, is he threatening to harm himself? 
if she goes to police. This is a common and incredibly effective technique. So with this situation, it's really important for you to keep him, his actions and his decisions clearly in view because that threat, that's a deliberate form of manipulation and coercive control. So just have, have a little think about where those barriers might be, her past experiences and beliefs, how the perpetrator is manipulating the situation. If you can address some of those barriers, then it's going to be that much easier to get the police involved at this stage. Thanks, Kathy. And Ellie, is there anything that you think is particularly important to do in the consultation at this point? I mean, I think I absolutely agree with Cathy. I think that at this stage, it's clearly a high-risk situation. We need to engage police because we, as healthcare providers, cannot keep someone safe. That is the job of the police. But at the same time, the dilemma is, or the issue is, that we know that reporting to police can increase risk to the victim. So when the perpetrator finds that the police have been involved... So the option for safety is to involve the police, but at the same time, we really need to double down with her and think about safety planning. So make sure that she has got a safety plan for staying safe at home, for leaving if she needs to. Another good resource, which is on the show notes, is the link to the Women's Legal GP Domestic Violence Toolkit, which actually has got some quite practical steps in safety planning. And safety planning is very much a dynamic and ongoing process. It's not like a thing that you write a safety plan, like you write your will and put it away. It's a thing that you think about every day. And as GPs, as doctors, it's something we should be talking with our patients about on a regular basis. So work out what her current safety plan is. Is it adequate? Is it keeping her safe? Is it keeping her kids safe if he's been turning up at school? And some of the really practical things that you need to talk about with a patient with any safety plan is, does she have access to money? So we know financial control is a big part of DV. Does she have her own money that she can control that he doesn't have access to? And sometimes if people are in a situation where They're living with their partner and their partner is controlling the money, seeing if they can start a secret stash, whether that's a bank account or a shoebox, but trying to find their own money is really important. Make sure she's got all her own identity documents, her driving license and her passport. One of the things that is really important these days is electronic safety. And so certainly there's quite a lot of resources about e-safety, but just checking that her phone isn't being tracked or that her computer he doesn't have access to he isn't accessing her emails or her personal accounts and again sometimes in situations people need a secondary phone that their partner doesn't know about and many of the dv ngos and organizations can help people organize that second phone and can help people do an e-safety check so really important you know it kind of sounds like spy movie stuff but we know that tracking and hacking are really good tools you know the pattern of control hasn't changed over the years but the tools available to the perpetrators has so I'd be talking to her about e-safety and last but not least absolutely every conversation make sure emergency numbers are at hand make sure that she knows to call triple zero and that if she needs to leave there's a safe place to go So I think that it's really important that we do this two-pronged approach. I think all too often we say, your risk is high, go to the police, and that we draw a line under the case, or we leave people managing their own risk. It's really important that we are managing it in these two ways and continuing at this time to manage her psychological safety. So the process of applying for an AVO or getting the police to apply for an AVO or 
apprehended violence order or an apprehended domestic violence order, so a restraining order essentially on the perpetrator, is often that the victim has to go to court. And that's a really intimidating process for people. And as Cathy said, it's really difficult because what most people want is for the violence to stop rather than to punish the perpetrator. So giving her some support around that. And as Cathy said before, one of the biggest supports that we can do is to have very clear and good notes about what's been happening to support that process. We're hoping that the victim herself has been taking some notes or has been thinking about it, but often there's been a pattern that's been going on for a number of years that the victim hasn't been documenting, but that your GP notes might be absolutely invaluable in supporting that court process and getting an AVO out to help protect the patient. Thank you, Ellie. I'd just like to summarise some of the things I'm going to take home from that case of Jennifer. Firstly, the importance of listening and validating her presentation and reinforcing that relationship that she can have with you and understanding the patient's stage of change and recognising that there are going to be significant barriers. She knows her situation very well and going through the stages of change with her like we do in other clinical scenarios is very handy in this kind of situation. An objective safety assessment using a tool such as the domestic violence safety assessment tool is a great way to have like a third person in the room to document objectively what is actually going on. And this tool is also used by other agencies. So it's an effective and efficient way to communicate with people like the police and domestic violence services. And thank you for all of those practical tips on safety planning and safety management And I now understand that this is a really, it's an ongoing, continuing, dynamic process uh, and one that the GP is best when they're actively involved in. And documentation, I've got that message loud and clear. We, We write things down very clearly, we write it down objectively, and we can use the patient's words to make it objective. And the police are there, they're to support us, they're to support the patient and particularly with the resource that is the domestic violence liaison officer in the police force. So let's go on to our second case. This case is Mandy. Mandy's 19 years old and new to your practice in a rural area. She's pregnant with her first baby. She has very regular periods. Her last normal period was five weeks ago and a home pregnancy test was positive. She's usually well with no regular medications and is a non-smoker. She's accompanied by Greg, her partner, who seems much older than she is. Greg tends to talk for her. He tells you how delighted they are to be pregnant, that they had a whirlwind romance and decided to move in together after knowing each other for only a few weeks. They soon decided to move from Sydney to your rural town for a fresh start and to start a family. You ask Mandy whether she misses Sydney and Greg answers for her. It was a toxic place. She's much better off here. Well, I can see some some red flags already. Ellie, what do you think is going on here? Yes, I'm certainly a bit a bit worried about this. So Greg certainly seems to be a very over-involved and over-protective partner. And that story of a whirlwind romance is a common story in the context of domestic violence, that the kind of perpetrator 
really kind of overwhelms his victim, his partner, with this you know amazing courtship. And before they know it, they've moved in together and she's pregnant. So it's a not uncommon story. And certainly, given that Mandy seems very young and very socially isolated now, moved to a new city, I'd be concerned about that. So I'd be concerned about how much of this decision-making is Mandy's and how much is Greg's. The fact that she is now pregnant in a new city or in a new town would be overwhelming for absolutely everybody. You know, we know that that time around pregnancy and early parenthood is a very overwhelming and difficult time for people. And not having her normal networks or her family around is going to be difficult if her only support is Greg. I'd also be wondering how much of the decision-making about the pregnancy is Mandy's choice. So we know that reproductive coercion is a common part of coercive control within domestic violence. So the partner either pressurizing the patient into becoming pregnant, and that may take kind of quite extreme forms like throwing away someone's pills or you know organizing for them to have their contraception stopped or on the other extreme we also see abusive partners who will deny access to starting a family either through enforced use of contraception or by asking their pregnant partner to get an abortion if she does become pregnant so that whole thing about the choice around the pregnancy I want to be exploring as much as I can. And that first antenatal visit may not be the time, but as much as possible, I'd be trying to work out how much of this decision-making is Mandy's. Absolutely. She's pregnant. So as a GP, we've got her attention for a little while. There are a few things that we can do with her. So we do a physical examination on Mandy and she's wearing long sleeves and when you push up her left sleeve to take her blood pressure, you notice there are three oval-shaped bruises in a row on the inner aspect of her upper arm. Ellie, what are you thinking when you see these bruises at this point? I'm becoming more and more concerned at this point. And as you say, that kind of antenatal visit, we have got a good excuse to do a physical once-over. And that can be really revealing, not just because we may find injuries, but it's also people's responses to those injuries. You know, how does she explain them? Is she flustered or upset when we point them out? But certainly that upper arm is quite a protected site. It's not a common site of accidental injury. It doesn't mean that all injuries there are necessarily abusive. You know, you may grab someone by the arm. You may grab your small child by the arm to stop them walking under a bus. You may grab someone during sex. But the fact that there are grab marks there means that they have been inflicted probably by someone and just kind of asking her very casually, oh, how did you get those marks might be a really good way of kind of gauging what's going on. Ellie, are there any other injuries that might make you suspicious of domestic violence? And are there any injuries that would make you really worried about the patient's safety? Yeah, so there's quite a lot of, there's a reasonable literature on injuries associated with domestic violence. So we know that 
head, neck and facial injuries are quite associated with domestic violence. So this was first observed, you know, quite a few years ago by dentists and dental maxillofacial surgeons who observed that their patients had either had motor vehicle accidents or were victims of domestic violence. And there's some quite good data suggesting that if you see somebody with head, neck and facial injuries and there's not a clear explanation for how they happened or a witnessed explanation of how they happened, you should be suspicious of domestic violence. There are certain injuries or assaults that also make us very concerned about patient safety. So I think I said earlier, sexual assault is a marker for seriousness, a marker for ongoing lethality within a domestic violence relationship. And sexual assault is something that may not be disclosed by the patient or even recognized because in a difficult relationship, then kind of having forced sex or having sex with your partner because it's easier than saying no may just be seen as kind of part of the price of a bad relationship. So I think explicitly asking about unwanted sex or sexual assault is really important. The other thing that we really worry about is strangulation. So strangulation is a serious injury in of itself, but again, is a marker for ongoing fatality, not necessarily by strangulation, but um, women who have been strangled by their partner are more likely to be killed by their partner in the future. So we'd be looking for bruising around the neck. We often don't see it. So again, if you're concerned about safety, directly asking about strangulation and directly asking about sexual assault. Okay, so we have a story where there's at least an overprotective partner, but probably protection is not the word we're thinking of at the moment. It's more of a controlling relationship probably. And you've also witnessed some injuries that are concerning. What would you do now? Well, what I really want to do is try and get Mandy on her own. So during the antenatal visit, I probably would like to do some kind of physical gynecological examination. So that might be a good excuse for trying to get Greg out the door, tell him that it's not appropriate for him to be there during the examination. So we could try and separate them that way or just tell him it's going to take a long time. These first antenatal visits are a long visit. We've got quite a lot of time. So you might want to go and get a coffee. Just trying to play down and normalize the fact that you would be asking a partner to leave during this time so that you can maybe get five minutes alone with Mandy. Another strategy is to try and leave Greg in the room and get Mandy out of the room by walking her to another clinic room to do her weight and height you could say your scales are broken or to walk her to the toilets to get a urine sample so there's a few things and it's worth trying to see if you can just get a couple of minutes alone with her that's all it takes to ask a few direct questions isn't it Exactly. And I think it also all it takes. Sometimes it's about asking questions, but it's sometimes about communicating your concern. So just like with Jennifer, you know, it's sometimes about you saying to Mandy, I don't think this is healthy. So being able to say something to Mandy like we often see bruises like this in people who are being hurt by their partner planting a seed that a that's not acceptable but b that if there is a problem that the gp or that healthcare in general is a good place to go with that so sometimes it really is a very brief interaction but what you want to do is flag with mandy that she can come back and that she can ask for help and some good tips there of how to separate them i like the scales one i'm going to use that one i think but unfortunately with Mandy, you cannot separate her from Greg on this occasion. Kathy, what legal obligations do we have now? 
Well, I'm thinking about safety at two levels. We have the woman and we have her pregnancy. So I would consider a prenatal report for a child at risk if that's available in your jurisdiction. For the mother's safety, now Northern Territory is the only uh, state or territory with mandatory DV reporting. So you're going to need to meet your legal obligations there. In New South Wales, there are things called safety action meetings, the SAMs. These are combined meetings of health and police, education, DV services, and other relevant agencies. When a woman's been identified as being as serious threat from their partner, now you can refer a patient to a SAM in New South Wales with their permission. But if the DV stat, a DV safety assessment tool, indicates high risk, then permission isn't needed. I mean, it's ideal, but it's not required. You can make a referral to SAM regardless of the patient's wishes. Now, there'll be a designated central contact point for the SAM referrals in your area. So if you don't know who that is, then make it your homework after this podcast. Have your practice manager follow that up. Who's the central contact point? And then disseminate that that information throughout your practice. But regardless of where you practice, you should know what's available in your area. I mean, what are your local DV services? Is there health pathways for DV in your area? How about inviting a police DVLO to a staff meeting to talk about what's available? Yeah, thank you. I know in our area we refer to the Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service, and that might be similar in different parts of New South Wales. But it's good to know how the system works in your own area, isn't it? Yes, and again, because it's a national podcast, we sort of can't be too specific. So get your practice manager on the job and find out what's available locally. Yeah, and it's good also to know that we have permission to talk to the police if we're extremely worried, even if the patient hasn't explicitly consented to that. Is that right? If you've got a credible concern that there's immediate threat to someone's safety, let's say you've got a patient in the room with you, you know he's trying to leave a relationship and they get a text, got a gun and I'm coming to kill you, that's going to override all your privacy obligations. Uh, You're going to be able to go to police. You can discuss that with your indemnifier first if you would like. But that's not the situation we've got here with Mandy at the moment. You know, we're We've got suspicions, but if you're not in New South Wales and you're not in the Northern Territory, there's probably not enough to go on here to breach your privacy obligations. You're just going to be keeping a close eye on things. Okay. And Cathy, if we do make a report about Mandy, what risks does that pose? Yeah, that is a really good question. So if you're talking about Northern Territory and New South Wales where you know, you're going to be making a report potentially without her permission, so right now this is the first antenatal visit, Greg's in the room. You're not going to be doing that with the perpetrator right there, giving them a heads up. You're going to be doing that after the consultation, which means Mandy doesn't know that you've done it. And that's going to be really important. You'll be very clear to police. I haven't told Mandy. I haven't done any safety planning with Mandy because that's going to put the ball in their court. I said in, in other jurisdictions, you're not going to be going to police at this stage. So we're not going to be putting any extra, extra risk. I think everybody listening to this will already know that the times when you're leaving a relationship is one of the highest risk times for serious assault and for homicide. How can we put some supports around this young woman? She's pregnant. There must be a few things we can do. Like what Ellie was saying earlier about the last case, it's not, oh, police are involved, that's it, I'm, I'm off the hook. We just play a, a key role in safety management uh, here that was really complementary to anything that police may or may not be doing. So regardless of whether police are or are not involved at this point, 
thinking to myself, how can I plug this isolated young woman into some kind of support services? Yeah, could we start our prenatal classes really early? What about a local antenatal service or, you know, even better, perhaps a high-risk pregnancy service? Could I have a chat to their nurse unit manager about referring this person in right now in the first trimester just to be getting them out of the house and engaging with other people, having other people apart from me, keeping an eye on them? Perhaps outpatient social work might be an option um, depending on where you are. And I think practice nurses uh, can play a really, really key role here. People trust nurses, and especially if your nurse has got some midwifery or women's health skills, that's going to be you know, a safe person to be plugging her into with hopefully a long-term relationship throughout this pregnancy and after the child's born. Yeah, I like the idea of the high-risk pregnancy service because this is a high-risk pregnancy. We know that Pregnancy is one of the risk factors for seriousness of domestic violence, although it's a little bit outside the square of the usual high-risk factors for pregnancy. And certainly, I can only speak for New South Wales in this regard, you can tell other services that this woman is potentially a domestic violence situation. So there are specific legal protections about sharing information about domestic violence with other healthcare providers, so you're covered there. That's good to know. I certainly would be making some advance appointments with Mandy and Greg, hopefully Mandy on her own. And we have the other luxury of ordering some early antenatal investigations in this case. Back to Mandy and Greg, they accept an offer of an appointment with your practice nurse, which is good news, and she's also a midwife. So you arrange the investigations and later that day you share your concerns with the nurse Fatima and she agrees to keep a close eye on Mandy and make some frequent appointments with her as well. Unfortunately, Mandy and Greg don't come to the first arranged follow-up appointment with you as the GP, but they do engage with Fatima. And at 14 weeks, Mandy comes without Greg for the first time and tells Fatima that she is now terrified of Greg. And she goes as far as saying, I think he's going to kill me. Fatima calls you in. Ellie, Kathy, what are our next steps? This is an emergency now, isn't it? It is an emergency now. So, you know, we know that pregnancy is a high risk time for domestic violence. We've already had our suspicions. So we need to absolutely acknowledge Mandy's distress and her concerns and identify this as domestic violence. And that Although it's good that she's recognising this as domestic violence and that she wants out of the relationship, that again, as Cathy said before, leaving a relationship is a high-risk time. So we need to take this very, very seriously. We need to know, is she safe now? And is she safe when she leaves your surgery? Those are our two immediate questions. So we'd probably want to be asking where Greg is. Does Greg know where she is? Does he have access to weapons? And it's probably useful to know when, if she says, I think he's going to kill me, if there have been specific threats of violence or specific use of weapons which have led her to believe this and to be very clearly, clearly document that. We really need to support this patient to go to the police. And if she refuses, this is really is a situation where we need to report to police even if she is not keen because we have no other way of making her safe. We have very real suspicions that a criminal act is going to be committed and that her life is at risk. So it's really important that we communicate to her how serious we think this is 
and that we are going to report to police. Now, she may not be able to consent to police reporting because she's so scared of Greg. He has probably made specific threats that if you go to the police, if you tell anyone else, I'll kill you. So in a way, she's effectively being held hostage by Greg with this fear and level of threat. And we need to be very careful. We're treading a tightrope between respecting the patient's autonomy and respecting her ability to make her own decisions, which is really important, but also ensuring her safety and recognizing that in some situations she is just not able to make that decision because she has not got the freedom to make that decision. So it's really important that we reflect back to her how serious this is and that we are going to report to police. But as we said before, your obligations don't end there. So the question I always ask people is, where are you going to go now? Are you safe to go home? It doesn't sound like home is a safe place for her to go to. So do we need to keep you in the surgery until we've worked out where you're going to go? Do we need to put you in a room and work out what your next step is, or has she got an identified safe place to go to? Has she got money, driver's license, phone with her, or are they at home with Greg? Has she just walked out the door with whatever she can lay her hands on? So again, going back to those elements of safety planning and keeping it practical, have you got money? Have you got ID? Can you access them? If not, what do you need? So really bringing it back to basics and having that very supportive approach with her whilst you're engaging police. Yeah, so we're recognising now that we are not able to keep her safe and all of those tips are just so practical. Thank you. And Kathy? Just following on for what Ellie was just saying, when it comes to documenting things later on, the two things that I think are, are most important are to document why you think that there's a serious risk here. So she's saying, I think he's going to kill me. And if you're going to call police against her wishes, the second thing you need to be documenting is that you feel that she wasn't doing this because she's being coerced or controlled. So from a legal sort of covering your backside point of view, those are the two things that need to be in there. There's a serious risk and this person can't go to police because they are being intimidated, threatened uh, or coerced. But hopefully, I mean, it sounds like she's ready now and hopefully we are going to be able to just go to police so this situation you definitely want to have discussed this at a practice meeting how you're going to manage it maybe even rehearsed it that you know the same way you rehearse situations like basic life support so if you've got a patient with you and out there somewhere is somebody who wants to hurt her how are you going to keep everyone safe who's going to be the one to call police and do you want them coming in the front door And who's going to alert reception that there may be a problem and how are they going to do that? And what do we want reception to be doing, just thinking about their safety and the safety of anybody else in in the waiting room? And meanwhile, where is the patient going to stay while we're waiting for police to arrive, ideally somewhere where she can't be seen if the perpetrator, you know, sticks his head in the door? So these are all the things that could be very, very kind of practice specific, depending on where your practice is and how it's laid out and who's where. But you don't want to be figuring this out on the fly when you find yourself in this situation you want to have a clear plan at a practice level for how to manage things I think that's incredibly useful. Yes and that will increase everyone's confidence if and when it does happen. Thank you I think we've covered a lot of the serious end of domestic violence but of course all domestic violence is serious and can get to that point. I'd like to really thank Dr Ellie Friedman, Dr Kathy Kramer, 
for your expertise and sharing your knowledge with us. And I'd like to refer any listeners to the show notes where you'll have access to a number of useful links, including the Domestic Violence Safety Assessment Tool, which we've referred to a few times today. Before we go, Ellie and Cathy, do you have a few take-home messages that you think are the most important things to take home from today's podcast? Thanks, Jane. I think that my most important take-home message is one that we've all heard before, which is domestic violence is everybody's business. We know from all of the research and from practice that if you don't ask people about their experience of domestic violence, they won't disclose it. So if we have suspicions, if something in our brain is saying this isn't quite right, we need to ask people how things are at home. We need to ask people whether they're experiencing not just violence, but abuse and control. Just remember, many domestic violence situations don't include any physical violence. I often find a good way of talking about it is to say, this is something we often see. We often see, you know, take the case of Jennifer with anxiety and depression. We often see anxiety and depression in people when things aren't going well at home. How are things between you and Michael at the moment? So really giving people permission to talk about domestic violence and then being able to address those disclosures when they are made to you. Being able to really validate and support the patient and really taking on that dynamic, ongoing process of safety planning and building into your patient's resilience and what they're doing to keep themselves safe at the moment. Because the fact that they've got into your surgery and that they're disclosing to you has taken huge acts of courage, often very small and almost invisible acts of courage, but they've got there, they've disclosed to you. And it's your job now to build on that and to build them into being able to take the next steps that they want to take and supporting them in whatever that decision is. So as I said before, many women want to stay in the relationship and for the violence to end. And even if we don't think that's realistic, we cannot make that decision for our patients. We need to keep them safe at whatever stage of change they are at. So I think it's really just normalizing DV, talking about it, and being as flexible as your patients are needing to be and really trying to meet them at their level. I'd agree with all of that. I suppose my three take-home points would be proper documentation. Number two, know what resources are available locally. And, and something like having police come to your practice staff meeting and talk about and demystify what going to police is like, I think can be really helpful. And finally, having a plan for managing a potentially violent situation. I'm thinking specifically of domestic violence, but those sort of plans, of course, are also useful in other circumstances. You, you may have a, a patient who's psychiatrically unwell and becomes violent or potentially violent. So that, you know, th these are skills that, that will pay off, I think, in, in your practice. But it's just a question of nutting down and as a practice deciding this is how we're going to manage it and making sure everybody knows what their role is going to be. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Jane. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us.